Join with me in prayer. Eternal and merciful God, you have loved us with a love far beyond our understanding. You've set us on paths of righteousness for your namesake. And yet we tend to stray from your way. And in doing so, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Through what we have done and through what we have left undone, we've wandered from your path. And we confess as a church family that we have sinned against you and we seek your faithful forgiveness for our weakness. Father, there are many on our prayer list that we would lift before you this morning. There are those that just this last week we've received requests to pray for, those who we have continued to pray for. And Father, there may be those here this morning with trouble on their hearts that they haven't spoken of, that they haven't mentioned, but it dominates their thoughts. All these we lift before you. We pray for the church around the world as she gathers to worship you. We pray for those who are persecuted for the cause of Christ. And we pray for our pastor and his family this morning as they travel. We pray your watch care over them. We ask that you would give our pastor and wisdom and discernment while he attends the General Assembly. And Father, as we go to your holy word this morning, enlighten our hearts that we may know the blessed hope to which we've been called through Jesus Christ. Grant me clarity of thought and clarity of speech this morning. Illuminate your holy word so that we might understand it, that we might be changed by it, and that we might see your majesty, our triune and holy God. In Christ's name, amen. We will be reading from Romans chapter 5 this morning, the first five verses. And you might have noticed that our scripture readings this morning came from the latter part of Romans chapter 8. So let's uh, read the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. One thing you might have noticed at the beginning of that section of Scripture was peace with God. And then at the end of that section of Scripture, you heard the term reconciliation several times. They're the same thing. So what we're going to look at today is sandwiched in between peace with God. So this section in Romans 5 is a transition point for Paul. He is moving from the first four chapters in which he spent a lot of time telling us about our need for justification. And as he concludes chapter 4, he mentions Abraham and how faith came about and what the result of that faith that was counted as righteousness. And as I mentioned, you heard our scripture readings were all from the latter part of Romans chapter 8. So we're looking at this section, five, just five, but if you could imagine Romans 5 and 8 as book covers to a very fine book with a lot of really good stuff in between. So we're at that transition point uh, in, in Romans 5. He was laying on the ground. His breath was coming hard. His t-shirt was torn. A faint stream of blood trickled down his nose. And he struggled to get up. But he was no match for my size. He was large for his age, a teenage boy. He was nearly as tall as I. But his motivations were anger, fear, and frustration. I had the tactical advantage. I spent many years in law enforcement. I've wrestled with people on the street a time or two. My motivations were to try to calm this young man down, gain control of the situation, and hopefully when it was all said and done, he would understand that what I did was not out of anger, but that it was out of love and care for him. This story involved just one of my many experiences when I was involved with the children's ministry in South Haven, Mississippi. It was a home for troubled boys. These were boys that no longer lived in their homes with their parents or guardians, and the reasons varied. Some were court-ordered, for disciplinary problems, derelict parents. Sometimes the parents just abandoned them. Sometimes the parents were incarcerated. And sometimes the parents were deceased. So these boys come from varying backgrounds. And they needed someone to care for them, someone to help them with their struggles, someone to love and care for them properly at an exceedingly difficult time in their lives. In in a sense, the home made a covenant with them, a covenant to meet their spiritual needs, their physical needs, and their emotional needs. We agreed to love them and to raise them in a home that was under the leadership of Christ. And all we asked in return was that they learn to be loved. And in that, hopefully they might learn to love. The boy that I had pinned to the ground had been teased by two smaller boys. And the teasing finally got to Marcus, and he lost his temper. 
So what had been an enjoyable basketball game between the old guy and the, all these young boys uh, turned ugly in a hurry. And before I could catch up to them to intervene, Marcus had one in each hand by the shirt collar. And he was in a rage. And he was dangerous. And it just felt like the only option I have is to get Marcus on the ground so that I can control him and keep these other two away. Now, every child that ever came to us all had one thing in common. When they arrived, they were afraid. And not just afraid of a new place or afraid of what the experience might be like. They were afraid for their lives. What is happening in my life? Why am I here? Doesn't my family love me anymore? Will I ever have a family to love me again? And these questions reflect their anxiety about the situation that they were in. Everyone in this room has been in some type of situation where you felt hopeless, where anger, fear, frustration, or hopelessness dominate your thoughts. No one in this room is immune to trials and tribulations. They're a part of life. And being a follower of Christ, as you know, does not remove those things from our lives. Paul is showing us here in Romans 5 that we are children of the new covenant promise. And therefore, Paul's word, therefore, we can rejoice in our covenant blessings of peace, hope, and love. A covenant that is guaranteed by the blood of Christ. These new covenant blessings come to us because of our justification by faith in Christ. As I mentioned, Paul's first word is therefore, reflecting on what he's already talked about. So before we go on this morning, you heard me read, and I used the term rejoice. We're going to talk about that for just a second. Uh, a better and more accurate translation of that word is going to be boast or exalt. I prefer to use the term boast, and here's why. In the previous chapters, Paul speaks negatively about boasting. And he's speaking in particular to the Jewish audience uh, who had a tendency to boast in the law, had a tendency to boast in God's chosen. We're God's chosen people. We are the people. So in the previous chapters, he uses that term negatively. In chapter 5, he's going to use it in a positive manner. And I think you'll see as we move along why boast is a better term than rejoice. So, as we saw in verse 1, that through faith in Christ we've been justified or redeemed from the curse of sin. That would have been a very powerful message for Paul's audience. He has a mixed audience, Jewish converts, Gentiles. But the Jewish audience, the converts... They come from a cycle of repeated covenant violations. A continuous, cycle, a continuous cycle of sin, covenant breaking, exile, restoration. That is the story. That is the history of the nation of Israel. And let's remember the Gentile converts would be familiar with that story, right? What, what scriptures would the Gentile converts have been familiar with. There was no New Testament, right? There's no New Testament. So the scriptures that they're familiar with come from the Old Testament. So both audience would have been familiar with that. They would have known about this covenant breaking. 
Now, as a result of this covenant breaking, God poured out the covenant curses on the nation of Israel, on the, on the divided kingdoms. Just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden temple, he expelled them. He sent them away into exile. But it's not just away from the land. It's away from the presence of God. But just like in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises restoration. He promised Adam and Eve the first hint of the gospel that we see. And he promised the nation of Israel through the prophets that a remnant would be restored. And God would indeed restore the blessings of the covenant, but under the blessings of a new covenant. A new covenant that would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is the good news that God had sent Paul to tell the Romans. Peace with Christ through God is one of those covenant blessings that's being poured out on God's people. As followers of Christ, we're no longer at enmity with God. You know that before we were followers, we were an enemy of God. We're no longer at enmity because of the work of Christ. But not only that, we're at peace with God. Verse 2 tells us that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I want you to notice this. Faith in Christ brings us into grace, and grace leads us into hope. And that hope basks or rests in God's glory. And the grace that Paul's speaking of here <coughs> certainly includes our initial saving grace. But it's bigger than that. It's more than that. It means that we are standing in the continual favor of God. It's a grace that means we always have access to the very throne room of God. The exile is over. There is no more exile. No appointment is required for us to be in God's presence. We are in God's presence this morning. And all we had to do was show up, come here, to be here. I think that's something that we can boast about. This access that we can boast about in the fact that we have in the glory of God, Paul very often ties glory and hope together. He does it in Romans chapter 8, he does it in Ephesians chapter 1, he does it in Colossians 1, he does it again in Thessalonians and Titus. And what Paul is getting at is not just a hope of one day knowing God's glory, but in a definite hope that we will be within God's glory. It's what Paul refers to as glorification when he's talking about um, the golden chain in Romans 8, 28 through 30. It's important for us to understand, particularly in Old Testament language, that the phrase, the glory of God, we sit around all the time trying to figure out what is God's glory, what is God's glory. Well, very often in the Old Testament, it actually refers to his presence. It's the presence of God. And that's significant here in Romans. We have access to that presence through Christ. So let me take you back to the story about the young man named Marcus that I told you about. After the fight settled down, I sent the boys upstairs to shower and get ready for dinner. I have to tell you, I was a little bit concerned about another fight breaking out while the boys were upstairs showering. But in typical fashion, the boys showered, 
They come flying down the stairs all rambunctious and hungry. And we have dinner and everything is fine. It's all back to normal. Well, after dinner, the three boys involved in the fight, Mr. Mike, we need to talk. <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm in trouble with the boys now. <laughs> so, so we sit down and talk. And um, Marcus says, Mr. Mike, you know we respect you. We can come to you and talk about anything. We don't always hear the answer that we want to hear, but at least you take the time to hear what's on our minds. You don't laugh at us, you don't make fun of us, and sometimes the stuff we want to talk about is kind of silly, but sometimes we have real deep hurt and we need to share it with somebody. And sometimes, like today, we don't act right, and you have to do what you have to do to get us back in track. And I understand that you're trying to shape me into being a good man. But you know why I respect you so much? Because you love me. Because you treat me like I'm your own son. I wish I had a father like you. Well, that turned into a pretty good witnessing opportunity for me and Marcus. Uh, another opportunity to share Jesus with Marcus. And one of the things I shared with Marcus was, you do have a father that loves you. A father far greater than your earthly father. A father far greater than the father figure I might represent to you. You have a heavenly father who loves you so profoundly in ways you can never imagine. I wish Marcus was here today. I wish Marcus could be sitting in this sanctuary and hear the words that I'm sharing with you this morning. It's funny sometimes what children say and think. And sometimes it's profound and moving. And that's exactly what my conversation with Marcus was like that evening. And as I thought about it, it occurred to me that's exactly the access we have to God, the Heavenly Father now through Christ. The covenant blessing of His access and to be able to stand forever in His grace. And we know that he might have to discipline us occasionally. And we know it'll be for our good and that he loves us as his own. He will always have time to hear the silly things we need to talk about. But more importantly, he will always hear the deep hurts that we need to talk about. So no matter what our day was like, when we lay our head down at night, we can lay our head down in peace, knowing that we are his and that he loves us so profoundly and that he is for us and not against us. As we come to verses 3 through 5, you will be able to see why I chose the word boast over rejoice. Paul's going to talk about suffering or tribulation in this section. 
Your Bible translation may say in verse 3, as mine does, that we rejoice in our sufferings. The word rejoice, in combination with suffering and tribulations, does not sound much like good news to me. And to get a sense of the suffering we endure, it's insensible to know why we might embrace suffering. And the issue of suffering goes all the way back to the fall. Suffering comes about as a part of the curse. Not only was humanity cursed, the whole creation was cursed. And there was a serpent that was cursed. And that spiritual warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman, though its outcome is sure, places us squarely in the middle because of our union with Christ. So we're squashed in between that warfare. Verse 5 tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now the work of the Holy Spirit is tied to suffering. Let me show you how. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, listen, provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Did you hear that? Provided we suffer with him. We're called to suffering, brothers and sisters. It's a part of our DNA. There's no escape from it. We have to learn to embrace it. Consequently, the only path to redemption is one that leads through suffering. The most redemptive act in all of history, in all of creation, involved tremendous suffering and death by the only one capable of redeeming us. Now, Paul's going to provide some logic for this boasting in verses 3 through 5. He lays out a chain of events um, that the trials of life take us through. We might see them as building blocks of faith. He says, suffering produces endurance, which is sometimes translated as patience, depending on your translation. Now, endurance doesn't sound so bad, does it? We probably all in here would agree, I could use a little more patience, a little more endurance. When I say I, I don't just mean me, I mean y'all. Every one of us could use a little more patience. And we see that the suffering we go through has a purpose of building that up, that endurance or that patience. And the building, of that up, building up of that leads to the development of character. Now the idea behind developing character is that of a proven experience. It's like the weightlifter, he just keeps lifting weights. He's building that muscle. He's building that character. Well, that's what's happening to us. Our strength is being developed through life's trials. And sometimes they're mundane, ordinary, everyday experiences. But sometimes they're soul-numbing experiences, hard things, very difficult things. And when we come out of these trials, on the other side, we come out more robust our character is further developed. Our faith is strengthened. And hopefully in, the tr in our struggles, we learn more about the presence and strength of God. Now this character development produces hope. Paul is speaking of a definite hope, not a, oh, I hope this happens today. That's not the kind of hope Paul's talking about. 
Paul is talking about this will happen kind of hope. And it's a hope that will not put us to shame, Paul says. Horatio Spafford was a prominent American lawyer from Chicago in the mid-1800s. Uh, in 1870, Mr. and Mrs. Spafford's four-year-old child died from scarlet fever. The following year, some of you might have heard of this, the Great Chicago Fire occurred. Spafford was a real estate holder in Chicago, and he held a bunch of real estate. He was, he was a well-to-do man, and he lost most of that real estate in the Great Chicago Fire. So he decides, man, we need a break. We need a sabbatical from this. So he elects to take his family on a cruise, on a vacation, um, to London. So Horatio Spafford, his wife Anna, and the four daughters travel from Chicago to New York to get on board a French steamer. Last minute, Spafford gets a notification that he's got a business issue back in Chicago that has to be dealt with. So instead of spoiling the family's vacation, he sends Anna and the girls on go ahead, I'll go back to Chicago, I'll take care of this, I'll catch the next steamer and be there shortly. So that's what they do. Anna and the girls set out for London and Spafford heads west back to Chicago. Nine days later, Spafford gets a telegram from his wife and it says, saved, alone. The ship that Anna and the children had been on was struck by another ship. In 12 minutes, the ship sank to the bottom of the ocean. Anna Spafford was found some time later floating on some piece of wreckage, unconscious from the ship. So Spafford um, gets the news, hops aboard the next ship. Now remember, he's got to go from Chicago to New York in the 1800s. It didn't happen like that, gets on a ship and heads for Anna. <clears throat> and his daughter, a daughter born later, I reported that during the voyage for Horatio, the captain of the ship called him to the bridge and explains to Stafford, we've made a pretty careful reckoning of the incident involving the ship that your family was on. And we believe right now we're over the spot where that accident occurred, where your, where your children perished. The water's three miles deep here. There, there was no hope for them. Spafford returns to his cabin and pins the words to the hymn, It is well with my soul. I'm not sure how he did that. By the, by the grace of God, no doubt. I'm not sure that we would all react that way. I'm sure that I wouldn't. Now, suffering comes to us as a reminder of evil. It's a reminder of sin and the brokenness of humanity. Do not think for a minute that the Apostle Paul or any other biblical character that experienced suffering enjoyed the experience. That idea is a false narrative. 
and it's harmful to believers when that kind of teaching is promoted. As if we're supposed to imagine, Paul laid out on his stomach, perhaps hands and feet tied, when he received 39 lashes with a leather whip. Did he lay there and shout for joy? Did he say, Jesus, may I have another after each lash? I don't think so. Paul felt the physical pain of those lashes and probably cried out in pain with each stroke of the whip. It's not hard to imagine tears streaming down his face. Imagine yourself in that position. I wonder if you might cry out to God, why? Why is this happening to me? Now, Paul knew a little something about suffering. If you're familiar with his New Testament writings, he writes about it a lot because he experienced it a lot for the cause of Christ. So he's no amateur. He's no stranger to it. But he did learn to understand it. He did learn to recognize that God's hand was involved. And he did learn that that suffering had a purpose. Those who would tell us to relax because God has it all under control, you, we all have that friend, that extra Calvinistic friend. God's got this. Sometimes that might cause us to think we don't quite measure up. They're well-intentioned, don't get me wrong. But it makes us feel like we don't meet some artificial standard of what being a good Christian is because sometimes we worry. And sometimes we feel hopeless. Suffering affects us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Those things are not beyond God's grasp. Think of Christ in the garden as he sweats drops of blood. How he asked his disciples, wait with me while I go pray. Wait. What do they do? They fell asleep. And as he prays to his father, is there any other way? Not my will, but thine. But he asked, didn't he? Is there any other way? Be reminded of the Christ who went to a friend's grave weeping. Lazarus. And though he went to the cross willingly, don't think for a moment that he went with a smile, imagining to himself, don't worry, God's got this under control. He endured, his humanity endured all the physical and emotional pain of a beating, being spat upon, mocked, carrying his own cross, and ultimately the crucifixion. He suffered under the weight of my sin and your sin. Christ suffered as the Father turned his face away. The pain suffering brings into our lives is real. It has a profound influence on us. And sometimes the suffering we endure can reduce us to absolutely nothing. I know I've been there. At the very least, it makes us see our own weakness. It is in that weakness, in the pain and difficulty of suffering, where God's at work. 
It's there where we find God's hands at work. The God who created everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing at all, is creating something new in us when we are going through these trials of life. <coughs> God promises it's for our good and for His purpose. It's something that we can cling to when suffering comes. Everyone suffers. Believers suffer and non-believers suffer. But a believer's suffering is not without a purpose. It has a redemptive purpose. It is making us more Christ-like. For the non-believer, their suffering is but a foretaste of their eternity unless they turn to Christ. Suffering has redemption as its end goal, and in that we can boast and find hope. The proof of God's love is found in the death of His Son. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In His death, Paul draws on three different aspects. An eschatological nature, a sacrificial nature, and it provides our assurance. The phrase, the right time, is the eschatological aspect. It indicates more than just ordinary time. It's the inauguration of a new age to come, of the new covenant. It's the end, the beginning of the end of the present age. The mosaic economy is coming to an end. An economy that was powerless against sin. When Christ was on the cross dying, the kingdom of God was opened up to man. At the right time for sinners to gain entrance. The gates of heaven were split wide open as the veil in the temple was torn in two. No longer would only the high priest, once a year, at peril to his own life, have direct access to the Holy of Holies. That access was open. Lift up the gates that this King of Glory may come in. And because the King of Glory comes in, we get to follow along. Christ's people get to follow along. His death was sacrificial in that it was on behalf of sinners. He was the perfect unblemished sacrifice and the only suitable sacrifice to satisfy God's judgment, just, justice. The concluding verses highlight the eternal aspect of Christ's death as it relates to our assurance on Judgment Day. Paul argues that if God has already justified and reconciled sinners to himself, then preserving the believer to honor his promises to Abraham, to David, and ultimately to his own son is guaranteed. God always fulfills covenant promises. God loved the world to the point that he was willing to give up his son, to withhold his fatherly love from him on the cross on our behalf. There can be no more remarkable example of love than this, a love that absorbed the sin of a hostile world and was also willing to suffer divine abandonment. The Holy Spirit is the one who transcends time to bring to the sinner's consciousness the depth of love displayed on the cross. And that's a love that we can boast in. 
and a hope for you that it's a love that gives us hope and peace. C.S. Lewis described God's love like this. God, who needed nothing, loves into existence wholly unnecessary creatures so that he may love them and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or shall we say seeing, a buzzing cloud of flies around a cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stakes of beams, nails driven through the nerves of feet and hands, the repeated torture of the back and the arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up just to take a breath. Lewis says here in his love, this is a diagram of love he gave himself. I think what Paul wants us to understand is if we don't understand how the triune God loves us now, it'd be a really good time to go back and see how he loved us when we didn't know him. That's why Paul has taken us back to the cross. Sometimes as believers, especially those of us that have been believers for a very long time, we forget what it was like to not follow Christ. We kind of forget what the whole thing was about. And then there come time in our life when we have doubts. And often those times are when difficult things come, when suffering comes. I think it's why Paul spoke about suffering in the previous verses to show us that suffering is working in our lives. The argument that God can't really love me just doesn't hold up against what we've seen so far this morning. And sometimes we might question our worthiness of God's love. Paul Tripp says we have more conversations with ourselves than with anybody else. There's no voice we hear more often than our own. Think about that. Think about how many times a day, how many times an hour, how many times in the last five minutes there's something going on up here back and forth with yourself. You're in conversation with yourself. Sometimes that voice tells us, I'm not worthy. Sometimes other voices tell us how sinful we might be. Or we're not a good Christian example. We're poor at this, we're bad at that. And sometimes we aren't very lovable. Are we husbands? And you know what? Sometimes those things are true. But here's a greater truth. Jesus did not make the ultimate sacrifice and give his life to perfect warm, lovable, deserving people. Jesus Christ came and gave his life for those who were unrighteous, undeserving, and unlovable. In a word, he gave his life for his enemies, for you and I. So when that voice comes, whether it's yours or someone else's, Maybe even the Holy Spirit to tell you how sinful you are. Acknowledge it and move on. But where you move on to, I'm here to tell you is important. Move on to the cross. This was the place where in all of history the triune God poured out all of his love on us. Remember God's covenant faithfulness. He does not fail to keep his promises. Recall the words of Romans 
838 and 39 that we heard this morning. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Romans 5 passage we looked at this morning gives us a glimpse of the new covenant blessings that are now ours through faith in Christ. So we now have hope in our newfound peace. We can have hope and even boast in our suffering. Not in the suffering itself, but what it represents and what it's doing. And we can have hope in the triune love of, of God. And I want you to notice something as we close. The structure of this passage that we just looked at. It begins with our justification. We've been declared righteous by faith in verse 1, just as Abraham was. And Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And this section of Scripture ends with Paul expanding on this covenant blessing. He spells it out for us at just the right time. At just the right time, Christ died a horrible death. He did not deserve to die on the cross to satisfy God's justice. The ultimate demonstration of love. Paul starts the passage and he ends the passage with the vision of the cross. What do we find sandwiched in between? You and I, suffering and persevering and being formed to be more Christ-like in between the two images of the cross. It's where we are. It's where we live. Now, I don't look forward to the next round of suffering that's coming in my life. I know it's coming. I can't stop it. It's coming to your life, too. And you can't stop it. But you might be able to embrace it. Put away fear, hopelessness, and anger. And replace them with peace, hope, and love when suffering comes. And the next time it comes, flee to God's word. Flee to Romans chapter 5. Remember this day. No longer will you have to ask, why God? Why me? Why have you forsaken me? Because he hasn't. His hand is on you, and it's working. Thanks be to God. Amen.